First of all, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you for the love that this church has shown to me and my family and for the opportunity. It's an honor and a blessing for me to stand up here and be able to, uh, to preach and to worship with you here tonight. All right, so turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, just thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, for the grace and the mercy that we have through, through his sacrifice. Pray, Father, that you would give me the words to speak tonight. I pray that you would apply the word where necessary. Father, I pray first and foremost that you'd be glorified. In 2009, in eastern Afghanistan, the second deadliest incident in the history of the CIA took place. A valuable asset the CIA, the CIA had been working with for years had come across some very valuable intelligence. And so in the, in the rush to get the intelligence, to get the information from this guy, he was rushed onto the base, and several um, valuable and uh, security procedures were neglected. And unfortunately, as it turned out, this asset wasn't just an asset. This asset was a double agent who was also working for the Taliban. And before he brought himself onto, onto the FOB in eastern Afghanistan, he strapped himself with a suicide vest. Um, he was not searched. His vehicle was not searched on entry to the base, which was standard operating procedure anytime you brought somebody on the outside in. And he was brought directly to the middle of the compound, directly right next to the CIA building. Um, as soon as the vehicle approached... And before he even had a chance to get out, there was a second opportunity to search him, which is second standard operating procedures. Uh, they failed, and they neglected in that. And the entire group of CIA officers, security personnel, approached the vehicle. Um, as this asset was walking out, stepped out of the vehicle, the security contractors who knew this gentleman immediately picked up that something was wrong. His behavior was off, and he was acting funny. So in their gut instinct and in their training, they immediately began to bark orders, yelling orders at this guy to stop, get down, as they were running to him. Unfortunately, it was too late. The, um, the asset detonated the suicide vest, and in the process, he killed three security contractors, four CIA officers, and a Jordanian intelligence officer were all killed in this incident. And it did just untold damage to the intel intelligence community in that area and in that part of Afghanistan, which was an actual... It was a crucial area for what was going on there. Um, these security procedures that were neglected, um, had they not been ignored, the risk could have been severely mitigated. may not have saved every life, but it would have severely mitigated, if not just about totally reduced the loss of life and the loss of intelligence that was incurred out of this. Several intelligence articles and news magazines um, in their 
post-blast analysis, if you want to say, of, of what took place and, and tearing apart the security procedures all came down to one thing, complacency. Complacency had developed within this CIA officer network, within this FOB, and those complacencies directly led to the death of these Americans and this Jordanian intelligence officer. And while preparing to deploy, we were encouraged over and over and over again, we were told over and over and over again that your first two months in deployment, your first two months in country on ground are going to be dangerous because that's when you don't really know what's going on. You're learning how to look for IEDs, you're learning what the threat is, and it takes a while to develop those skills. Your last two months in deployment, and this is what really hit home, is complacency is what's going to kill you in the end of your deployment because you're used to these things. They become second nature to you. You quit thinking about it. You become apathetic to it. You lose your zeal for these security procedures that are designed to save your life and to keep you alive when a situation goes downhill. And in a war zone, it's going to go downhill. Complacency is absolutely dangerous in a war zone, and it's also dangerous to the Christian life. The Christian life is designed to continue moving forward. We are designed to constantly be, we're, we're being sanctified every day. Every day we're growing to look more and more like Christ. We are constantly moving forward. The Christian life does not sit still. It does not sit stagnant. But if, the, if we do become stagnant, certain things are going to start to fall to the wayside, one of which is our, our zeal and our, our passion for knowing the things of God, our passion, to, our desire for God are going to begin to fall to the wayside in our complacency. Our scripture reading, our pouring over scripture is going to come to a halt. Our prayer life is going to slowly fall apart to where our prayers become hitting the emergency red button. When that major emergency, that catastrophe happens, I'm going to pick up my red phone to God and find out what's going on. Our prayer life will start to fall apart. We'll lose our zeal and our lack of, of obedience sin will slowly start to creep into our lives. We will become open. We'll become vulnerable because we've lost our vigilance. And then we will find ourselves in a dangerous situation when we're looking for happiness outside of the, outside of the body of believers, outside of Christ, and we start to look for our happiness inside the world. We find ourselves in a dangerous situation. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who found themselves in a very similar situation. And theirs was due to persecution. They were heavily persecuted after being very, they had a very high passion for these things. They were going out, they were spreading the gospel. Um, they were doing all these things. They were, they were pursuing God. And then as the persecution started, things kind of started to implode on themselves. And they started to become a little more apathetic. They started to become complacent in what was going on. They lost their zeal for the knowledge of God. We find out in, in Hebrews chapter 6 that they were stuck on the, the spiritual milk. They weren't pursuing those greater knowledges, they weren't pursuing the real meat of what there is to know about Christ and about our salvation and the things that come out of that. They lost their hope, and some were beginning to completely pull away from the church and abandon the body of believers altogether. And then in writing to these people, the, the writer of Hebrews, what I thought he does an amazing thing. He doesn't just go directly at the problem. What he does is he, he, he writes a dissertation on the doctrine of Christ. He goes in great detail into who this Savior is that we have, this person that we should be pursuing. He gives us just great, beautiful detail on who Christ is and the work that he has done. And through that work, what is this new reality that we have? Because we have left the old ways of life. We have left the old system. We've left the old sacrificial system. These are Jews that he's talking to that have converted to Christianity. What is this? And what am I to do with this? 
And he makes it clear that they have a new reality in Christ. And that in that new reality, there is something that we are to do. There is an action. There is a response. We have to make a decision when we are confronted with this new reality that we have in Christ. And he goes on and he talks about how Christ was better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. He was better than the Levitical priesthood because he was the better priest. He was better than the old covenant because he ushered in the new covenant. He's better than the sacrificial system because he was the ultimate sacrifice. And through the person and work of Christ, which we know is the gospel, we are permanently transformed. And in our passage tonight, the writer is going to tell us how Christ has created this new reality. What is this new reality? And what does that mean for us as believers? So turn with me now. Let's look at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, why is it important for us today that we have confidence to enter the holy place? Because for the Jews reading this, this would have been a jaw-dropping moment. This, was, this is something that is completely outside of, of the norm for them. They don't understand and they don't have a category for being able to enter into the presence of God. You probably would have heard a pin drop when this was originally read to them. And Leviticus 16 gives us some background on why that is. Leviticus 16 is telling us about the, the Day of Atonement, or otherwise known as Yom Kippur. And that is the one day of the year where the sacrifices were made on behalf of all the people. And you had the Jewish temple. And the Jewish temple is broken down into certain sections, or um, if you want to call them rings or courts, as often the term used for it. But at the very center, all these courts lead down to what is called the Holy of Holies. And this, and this is the holy room. This is that room that the presence of God would indwell on this one day of year when these sacrifices were made. Inside of this Holy of Holies is the mercy seat, or also known as the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the, um, the jar of manna from their time in, in the wilderness, Aaron's staff that had budded miraculously, and, of course, the stone tablets, the covenant law, the law that we are all judged by and the standard by which we are all to live, was also kept inside the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat. And this is important to understand because the Jews were not allowed, everyday citizens like you and me, would never be allowed to walk into that room, into the presence of God. We were separated. They were separated by a thick veil. This veil or this curtain was 60 feet tall by about 30 feet wide and about four inches thick. That is a thick curtain. It's not like one of our window drapes that we have today. No light is getting in and out of that bad boy. You weren't going to look into this. You were going to have no interaction with that room except through the high priest, who on this one day a year was the one guy that was allowed to enter that room and then make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But before he could walk into that room, he had to be purified. He had to go through a, a bathing process. He had to wear the, um, the garb, the robe that, was, that God had designed for him to wear when he walked in there, which has a ton of meaning um, to all the jewels and everything that is on there. It all points to, a, uh, to the, the new future temple that we have. And um, this priest, once he was purified, once he was cleansed, physically would walk into there, and then he had to make two sacrifices. This human priest had to first make a sacrifice for himself because he was also with sin. He was not sinless. 
So before he was able to make that sacrifice for the people, he had to make atonement for himself. So with the blood of an animal, he would sprinkle that mercy seat with the blood. And then after that, he would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood and make the sacrifice for the people. In this mercy seat, the presence of God would come down onto the mercy seat. He would rest on it. And this is where he would dispense mercy to the people after atonement was made for the sins. But this sacrifice, this blood of the animals, was not enough to completely atone for the sins. It never cleansed the conscience of the people. And this is important. And the writer of Hebrews points this out as he's laying out his, his doctrine of Christ and the work and how he is better than everything. That this, the blood of the bulls and the goats could not cleanse the conscience. And without a clean conscience, no one can enter the presence of a holy God. That would be an absolutely terrifying situation. Not only were the sacrifices not complete, the priests were unable to bring the Jews with them through that curtain and into the presence of God. And that priest was not able to sacrifice himself for his own sins, or let alone the sins of the people. And so the, the Jews were waiting on a better covenant. They were waiting on a better high priest who, were able to, who would be able to fulfill these things. They were waiting on a better sacrifice that would be a once-for-all sacrifice. And Jesus is that new and that better covenant. And Jesus is the new and the better reality that we have through his sacrifice as our supreme and ultimate high priest. And we know that he's our high priest because he was able to offer up himself as the perfect spotless lamb, the perfect spotless sacrifice who is without sin for the people. Hebrews chapter 9 discusses how Christ was better than the blood of the bulls and goats because his blood offering was a once-for-all offering. It finished it. As soon as Christ made, a, made the atonement for sins, after he died on the cross, he resurrected, he was ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sat down. And he sat down because it was finished. It was done. The work was complete at that point. There was nothing else to do. Sins previously, sins currently, sins going forward. Completely done. The sacrifice was made through the blood of Christ, and it was possible through the blood of Christ because he was not just a man. Had Christ been just Jesus Christ, the man, his sacrifice would not have made pure 100% atonement for sins. Because we wouldn't have needed Jesus Christ, the man, for that. We could have had the priest to handle that for us. But it wasn't enough. Jesus Christ wasn't just a man. The first thing that the author of Hebrews does is lays out his argument, Jesus is God. He is the exact representation of God. He is the God-man. And in being the God-man, as Brian mentioned this morning, is the hypostatic union. That union made it possible for that blood to be a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. There was no other way to make atonement. Jesus is also our ultimate high priest because through his flesh, as the writer says, which we know is through his broken body, the curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separated us from the presence of God, was torn. That 60-foot high curtain was torn from the top down to the bottom. An absolutely amazing thing. It was the hand of God that tore that curtain, not man. And through Christ's body and through him making a new way for us to be able to enter in the presence of God, we can now live in continual presence. If we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we now have full access to the, to the throne room of grace. Absolutely amazing and beautiful thing. And this was absolutely earth-shattering, and it would have been reality-changing for the Jews who had heard this. They, again, they didn't have a category for being able to enter in the presence of God. This was not something they would have been able to do. 
And not only could they do it, they had, they had sinful consciences. But in the light of the person and the work of Christ, we live in a new reality in which we can enter boldly and confidently into the presence of God without fear of judgment because we have a clean conscience. We have been clean. We are no longer on our own. We have a mediator. We have a savior. And we've been raised to new life that is no longer constrained by sins or haunted by a sinful conscience. And that should motivate us. That should light a fire in us to pursue God. We should have, that should light the zeal in us for the things of God. And as we'll see in this first exhortation in verse 22, to draw near to God. And because we live in this new reality, we can draw near to God. Look with me in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, we've reached this first exhortation, which is made possible because of the new and better reality in the person and the work of Christ. We can and we must draw near to God. This isn't optional. Again, if we are not moving towards God, we are falling away. There is no in-between. This is a continuous act. This isn't something that was just for our initial act of salvation when we were purified. We now live in a new reality in which we continually, every day, are pursuing to draw near to God. And we don't, we don't need a building to do this. Just like the Jews no longer needed the temple, they no longer needed the Holy of Holies, we don't have to save it for Sunday morning worship. Monday through Friday, seven days a week, we are continually able to draw near to God. It doesn't matter where we are, whether we're at home, whether we're in our kids, we're in our car, we have full and complete access to the throne room of grace. But before we can draw near to God, we have to be a part of this new reality. And we have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we cannot enter into the presence of God. We cannot draw near to God. The prerequisite for drawing near to God is the acceptance and the belief, faith, the gospel. We have to recognize that we are all sinners, that we are all in need of an atonement for our sins. We have all violated God's laws. We have broken every single one of those Ten Commandments. If we violated one, we violated them all. And we stand condemned in front of a holy God in whose wrath is being ready to be poured out on us. We need an atonement on our behalf that we cannot do ourselves. Isaiah says that all of our righteous works are like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do on our own. But Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, became the spotless sacrifice, and as our high priest offered himself as that perfect sacrifice on the cross, he endured God's wrath on our behalf, resurrected, because God accepted his sacrifice, and he's currently in the temple, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And if we will repent and we believe, we can be cleansed and we can be a part of this new reality in Christ. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So with a true heart and full assurance of faith, knowing that we have been cleansed, that this was a once-for-all sacrifice. Our heart is cleansed, and we can boldly enter and confidently draw near to God. So we know now that we must always draw near to God in a continuous act. So how do we do this? How do we draw near? We draw near through worship, through our spiritual worship. Paul tells us in Romans 12 um, that our spiritual worship is the renewal of our minds and the presentation of, of our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. 
And we're all worshiping something. Whether we, re- we realize it or not, we are worshiping. We're either worshiping God or we're going to be worshiping an idol. How do we know that? How do we know what we're worshiping? How do we know if we're worshiping God versus an idol? You have to ask yourself, what consumes your thoughts? What consumes your, your mind in those quiet times, those quiet moments that you have alone? What are you focusing on? What, what cons- completely consumes you? How do you react when something you love that's dear to you gets taken away from you? Is there anger? Is there anxiety? Is there resentment? Those are all indicators. Those are like warning lights. Check engine light on your car to tell you to check under the hood that something's wrong. Anger, anxiety, and resentment tell us as Christians we need to look under the hood. We need to check our hearts. Because more likely than not, there's an idol. There's something that we're hanging on to that we don't want to give up, that we don't want to lose. And if we're not worshiping God, we are worshiping an idol. How do we know we're worshiping God? If we know we're worshiping God, we're going to be pursuing God. Not out of moralism, not out of salvation, but because we have been saved, because we have been cleaned. We've been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. We're going to be pursuing Christ and God through Scripture. We're going to pick up, we're going to study the Word of God daily because we understand that it enlightens us, it penetrates us, it encourages us to move forward. It moves us to repentance and identifying those areas in our hearts that are hidden from us. We know the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It completely cuts us and exposes those areas of our lives that we can't see. We also draw near to God through prayer. We need to draw near in a, uh, by a living a life of prayer. Again, this isn't hitting the emergency phone or grabbing the, that red phone when everything finally comes crashing apart. This is a, a life defined by prayer. And we do this because we have an understanding that God is sovereign and God is the one in control of all things, not us. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. And that next breath is a gift because he is all controlling of absolutely everything. So if we understand that, if we understand that Christ upholds the power of the universe by his word, that he sustains us, our prayer life is going to reflect that because we're going to lay everything at the foot of the cross, absolutely every aspect of our lives. Do we currently, do we currently reflect that in our prayer lives? Do we, do we pray for the salvation of our lost friends, our lost families, our community, our neighbors? Do we pray for the changed hearts of our children? Do we pray that God would conform us to the image of his son by changing our hearts? The writer in Hebrews, in uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We know where our source of hope is. We know where our source of strength is. And through our prayer, we acknowledge that. We also, through obedience, draw near to God. Again, not out of moralism. We don't, we don't draw, we don't act on obedience to earn our salvation, to get maybe that next level up, maybe a, to try to become a deacon or to look better amongst our peers. We become obedient, again, because we've had a changed heart by the gospel. We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. John in John fourteen fifteen, the Lord said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As new creatures in Christ, we are called to action. We are called to draw near to God. And we can do these things without a changed heart. We can teach Sunday school. We can teach Awana on Wednesday nights. 
We can pray even. We can read our Bible without the gospel. But without the gospel, it's just moralism. And it leaves us spiritually bankrupt. So draw near to God because of that new reality that we have. Our second point, going on in verse 23, because of our new reality, we also must persevere. Look with me in verse 23. Let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is this confession of our hope, and how do we hold on to it without wavering? Hebrews 3.1 gives us a little indication of this. He says, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. The confession is that Jesus was sent by the Father to be our salvation. He was sent as our final and permanent high priest, and that confession is the source of our hope. Christians, we are an eschatological people. We are looking forward constantly. We are looking forward to that consummation of the age. We are looking forward to that return of Christ. And that day of the Lord, if you have not been cleansed, if you're not living in that new reality, is not a teddy bear gumdrops and soda pop day. That is the day of judgment. That is the day of God's wrath being poured out on the unjust. And that is a frightful thing. But we, who are in this new reality in Christ, we have hope because we know that we have been cleansed and we will be found righteous in Christ. But until then, it is easy to lose our focus until the day of the Lord. And the recipients of this letter were going through that. They were suffering through the, through the persecutions that were going on around them. They were being tried. They were becoming weary. And uh, we have to realize that coming to Christ isn't going to relieve the sufferings in our life. Coming to Christ isn't going to put together the bed, the, the trials and the temptations that we're going to endure. And this verse suggests that things are going to get difficult. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's going to be hard fought. There's a spiritual warfare against our flesh that we fight on a daily battle that will continue until the day of the Lord or until we're called home. And we in America, we're not experiencing persecution like the, uh, the recipients of the book of Hebrews were or like those in the Middle East who are contending with ISIS right now. It doesn't mean that we won't experience those things in the future, and we pray that we won't. But we are under constant pressure to conform to our society in America. There is heavy pressure right now to accept homosexuality as an as acceptable form of marriage. There's heavy pressure right now on business owners. There's people shutting down their businesses right now because they're refusing to, uh, they're refusing to acknowledge that as a biblical, uh, biblical definition of marriage. There's pressure to, to accept and be willing to accept the murder of uh, unborn babies, millions of them by the year. And now we're moving into a time when transgender is going to be the new hot topic and the new pressure on to accept this as a new reality. Not only do we experience tribulations and trials from outside, we, uh, we're living in a sinful, broken world that affects our relationships. It affects our, every aspect of our being. So the road is not easy. But we know what is in store for the believer at the end of this life. God has promised that the best is yet to come for those who persevere to the end. We will be in glory. We who hold on to Christ and the new reality through his blood, we can hold on. We can hold on without ever wavering, not in a blind hope, but as the writer says, because God is faithful. Our hope and our source of hope is Christ and in God's faithfulness to his promises that he's going to fulfill what he says he's going to fulfill. God does not waver. God does not change his mind or his decrees. God is not surprised by what takes place in the world and in our lives. 
God knows because everything is in his plan of redemption and everything is going to come to fulfillment. Redemption for his people and justice for the wicked, it will come to pass. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And then Hebrews 6.18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled our refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. What are you holding on to? What brings you hope? Do you rest in the promises and the unchangeableness of God? Or do we try to find comfort in the finite things of these world that are going to fade, will not last forever, and will let us down? Do we try to find comfort in our family, in our job, sports, our recreations? God's promises are true, and as we draw near to God, we will find that our hope is in Him. So draw near to God and hold fast to the confession. And as we come to the third exhortation, and because of the blood of Christ, through this new reality, we also must be committed to the body of believers. Verse 24 through 25 of chapter 10 states, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet with one another as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day draw near. So we have been exhorted by the writer to draw near to God, to hold fast to the confession. And the author now moves forward and highlights a means by which we are able to persevere to the end. And that's the body of believers, which is given to us as a means of grace. What does it mean to stir one another up to love and to good deeds? The word for stimulate and stir up is a strong word in the original language. That means to incite to a strong level of irritation. It was used in Acts 15.39 to describe the fallout that was going on between Paul and Barnabas at the time. It's a level of irritation that produces an action or a reaction. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, we see that they separated for a time. Um, I can remember as a kid, um, I, was, I was that child. I uh, picked on my sister and agitated her every chance I could possibly get. It didn't matter what it was. I'd look for any means possible to bring that mission to fruition, and I would complete it, and usually well. And um, I remember there were several times where mom and dad would tell us to go clean our rooms. If you're parents, you know how this goes. Go clean your room. I'm going to inspect it when you get done. You're not done until I say it's done. And that was the household I lived in. So I'd wait for my sister to finish. She would run out of the room to go get mom and dad. Well, I'd go in and rearrange a few things in the room for her to kind of tidy it up. So mom and dad would come back down. Well, room's not done. Well, it was Jonathan. Jonathan messed up my room. I don't want to hear it. Clean the room. They'd leave. She'd go back and try it again, right back in there again, mess things up a little worse this time. And so finally she's catching on. And the whole time, her irritation is getting stirred. I'm just stirring the pot. I'm making it worse. It's building, it's building, until finally, the way it normally ended, she'd come busting into my room and we would end up in a fight, into a full-out brawl. Because I had irritated her to the point that she had to act. And this is the same word that's being used not in a negative tone, but in a positive light. We're not going to stir one another up to, to, uh, to a negative, to a blowout. We're stirring one another up to love and good deeds. So what does it mean to stir one another up? It also means that we're to be intentional. The writer calls us to consider. We're to intentionally come up with ways to show love. And at, that, at this point, 
think it helps to make sure that we have a biblical definition of love. Society has defined love by a feeling. Love is a feel-good situation. And the high rate of divorces in our society attest to this. Because when the going gets rough, and when the sins of, the, of our marriage start to, start to come up, love doesn't feel so good anymore. Love starts to hurt a little bit. And for, and for some, especially in our society, for a lot in our society, that means, you know what? Now, maybe this isn't really love. Or I've fallen out of love with this person, which we hear a lot. I've fallen out of love, therefore I'm going to abandon this marriage. I'm going to get, the, I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to find the person who is my true love. But that is not the biblical definition of love. The biblical definition of love is that Christ, in his love, sacrificed himself for us. He died for us. That is love. Love is sacrificial love. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, spends a, a great deal of time diving into what sacrificial love really is. Love doesn't always feel good. Christ going to the cross on our behalf did not feel good. It was a painful experience. Love isn't always painful, but it isn't always butterflies and candy bears and teddy bears either. But this is the definition of love. It's sacrificial. This is the love that we are to stir each other up to, that we are to be intentional in finding ways to encourage within the body. It also means that we are not to neglect to meet with one another. The command here is, is crucial, and it is also a strong word in the original language. The meaning behind it, it can also be translated to desert or to forsake. And this word is also used in Hebrews 13.5, where the writer of Hebrews is bringing back a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from God. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is powerful. And as believers, we have the assurance that through everything that life has to throw at us, through the ups and downs, we know that we have a Heavenly Father who will not leave us. If we are His sheep, He will not forsake us. And that is a positive example of the type of commitment that we are to have to the body of believers. We are not going to abandon the body of believers. We're going to have the same... Uh, we're going to approach the body of believers the same way that Christ approaches us in His church. So don't neglect to meet with one another because the day of the Lord is drawing near. Again, we said that was the day of judgment. There was some urgency in this. And again, we should be stirred up to action. We'd be stirred up to motivate us. We should be have, this should bring our zeal back to us, light that fire to get going, to get moving, start looking for ways to encourage one another to love and good works. So how do we stir one another up to love and good deeds? We have to remember that our, our society, unlike our society, which prizes and pushes isolationism, and working independently, that I look at me, I did this on my own. I went start to finish. I didn't have any help. I completed this by myself. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life, we are dependent on our brothers and sisters in a body of believers that help us persevere to the end, to that day of the Lord. Um, this made me think of a special forces team as a 12-man team. And from the beginning of training, every aspect of their lives is done together. They are welded together through adversity. Through extremely tough training, they were beat up, they were abused, but at the same time, they eat together, they sleep in the same barracks room with one another, they travel together. Everything is done together as a team, intentional to force them together. And they, they, um, they eventually deploy together. They fight next to one another. They cry on each other's shoulders. And they work as a team, and it, it works well, and it becomes a very lethal weapon in the hands of the military because they each understand that they have a specific job to do. 
and they are well-trained and well-rehearsed in that job. They are experts in that job, and they understand that if they are not there to perform that job, if they don't perform that job well, it's going to affect the overall mission, and people could die. So they take this very seriously, and they all work together on their individual mission to complete the mission of the whole. And the body of believers is similar to this in a much better and a purified state and an eternal, unlike the special forces teams, but the Holy Spirit grants each one of us a spiritual gifts. We have a set of spiritual gifts that we are to use to exhort the body of believers. In uh, Romans chapter 4, Paul goes through great lengths on this and go, dives into it. Some of us are given the gift of service. Some of us are given the gifts of teaching, exhortion. Some of us exhort mercy, grace. Some of us have uh, our prayer warriors for the body. All these pieces together make up the whole of the congregation and enable us, that gives us the tools and the means to be able to exhort one another to love and the good works. And also as a congregation then, we take that out to the community through evangelism and the spreading of the gospel. So we stir up one another to love and good works through our spiritual gifts, but we also do it by truly getting to know one another. As Baptists, we know how to fellowship. All we need is a coffee pot and a few donuts. We can create, we can create some fellowship. But there's a tendency to put up walls and not just in the Baptist life, but also in the evangelical world, and also because our society breeds this. We put up walls, and we only let people in so far. We don't want to share what our struggles are. We don't want to share our sins and our temptations. We don't want to open up so that we can have the body come in, and we can exhort each other. We can encourage one another. We can pray for one another. James tells us in chapter 5 of his book to confess our sins one another so that we can pray for one another and encourage one another. So we have to get to know each other, and we also have to hold each other accountable. And we are called to hold each other accountable when we begin to, when we begin to drift, when we have uh, sins that begin to take over our life. Maybe we become stagnant to the point that, uh, that we are starting to waver. Um, holding, each other accountable is a, holding each other accountable is a very important part of our perseverance. As outlined in Matthew 18, Matthew 18 it is absolutely never done outside of prayer and love. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the author of Hebrews, um, throughout the book, gives us a, an example of this, and what's known as the warning passages. The author of Hebrews gives us a doctrine. He tells us a doctrine about Christ. And then he exhorts us, and he tells us, what does that mean for me as a, as a member of the body of Christ? And he gives a positive exhortation to live that out. Then he also gives what would be considered a negative. He gives a very powerful warning. Do not fall away. He also says, do not harden your hearts, as in the desert. And then following in verse 26, immediately after this passage, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is powerful. So what is the author saying here? Is he saying that we will lose our salvation? Absolutely not. The rest of Scripture does not hold to that. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And then Paul again in Philippians 1, 6 reassures us and says, I am sure of this, that we who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. So if he's not telling us that we can lose our salvation, what is the author doing? Why is he bringing this up? The warnings are a, another means in which 
The author is pushing us forward. He is giving us a means of grace. These warnings are designed to snap our head. If we are complacent, we're beginning to fall back from the rest of the body of believers. These are to catch your attention. But they're real. And they should be taken seriously. And then these, this is a, that means of grace that will continue to push us forward to that day of salvation in a way that um, the Spirit uses this to keep pushing us along. So again, this requires that we be true and honest with each other, that we're transparent. And while our culture continues to value individualism and isolation, we have to be countercultural and move towards one another by meeting with each other and encouraging one another because that is God's plan for perseverance and his plan for sanctification. And we will be surprised as, as we come to the body of believers with the intent of encouraging somebody that somebody else is doing that exact same thing. And we find that there's mutual encouragement and that we ourselves are encouraged at the end of the day. So in conclusion, the writer has set the standard for those who have first been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So are you drawing near to Christ or have you become stagnant? Have you become complacent in your Christian life? Are you passionate about worship? Not worship in music. Now, I'm not talking about worship in song. That is absolutely critical, and it is something that is a, um, is a, it's a beautiful thing. That's not the worship he's talking about here. He's talking about everyday life, that renewing of our minds and presenting ourselves as a holy sacrifice. Are you passionate about worship, or have you lost your zeal for the things of God? Is your life marked by a life of prayer, or is it marked by the big red button that we hit when it's time for an emergency, or that big red handle on the phone? Are you encouraging the body to love and encouraging them to good deeds? Are you pulling back, maybe staying on the outskirts, putting up that facade and saying that everything's all right? What will be your response to the new reality that we have in Christ? Father, I come before you this evening.